Greetings and blessings to one and all. Again this day, may you be blessed and challenged and enriched again. God has been good to us thus far. Turn your Bibles now with me to Mark chapter 6. I know it's been a while since we looked at this uh, passage, uh, studying through the Gospel of Mark and and preaching from it. It's been um, quite some time since we looked at Mark chapter 6, but I'd like to just uh, continue there. Um, you surely don't remember uh, much that was uh, spoken about. I hardly remember where I left off and how I ended and so forth. But I'd like to go and take my text from verse 30 through the end of the chapter, verse 56. So I think we'll read the text to begin with, and then maybe uh, do a little brush up as to where we're at in this passage in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no, had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and outwent them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep not having a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the village, and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, Shall we go and buy two hundred penny worth of bread and give them to eat? And he saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes. And he commanded them to sit all, and he commanded them all, I'm sorry, let me read it again. And he commanded them to make all them all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed and brake the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were about five thousand men. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before in the Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But they saw him, they all, and when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked unto them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Genesaret, and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, and ran through that whole region round about, and began to carry about in beds those that were sick, where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch him, 
touch if it were but the border of his garment, and as many as touched him were made whole. Going back to the first part of Mark chapter 6, we see that Jesus uh, is in the Sabbath and he teaches uh, in the Sabbath in the synagogue. And uh, he is in his home country and he's not very well accepted there. We talked about the prophet not being without honor, but in his own country. Verses 1 through 6, we spoke about the sending out of the missionaries. Verses 7 through 13. And we talked about the beheading of John the Baptist in verses 14 through 29. Now, in those scriptures, it's kind of an insert. But the reason that this, those verses are there is because uh, Jesus was in that country and people were saying, well, he's a prophet. Well, he's a lies. And uh, uh, someone others said, well, he's, he's like the prophets. But John, but, but Herod, Herod the king, when he heard of the works that Jesus was doing, his being smote in his heart and having an evil conscience, he said, this is John. John come back to life again. That's the one that I beheaded. That's the one that I took care of. And here he is doing all these wonderful miracles again. Because Herod, Herod liked John. Herod knew that John was a righteous and a just man. And he liked John's preaching. He, he paid attention to that. Uh, it tells us that in uh, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that it was a just man and a holy, and observed him. When he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. John was a good preacher, and Herod loved to hear John. But there was one thing that Herodias, John or Herod's wife, well, his second wife, at least, I don't know, I, I, I'm just assuming it was his second wife. But John was saying, telling Herod that it's unlawful for him to have his brother Philip's wife. And that made Herodias mad. She was angry about that. She wanted John put away. But she couldn't do anything about it. And uh, so Herod uh, took John and put him in prison. I don't know what his future plans were, but so the, the time comes and so things work out. I, I'm just amazed again as I, read, as I look over this passage and what happened. I don't think John ever figured it would come to this place. But it came to the place where he was almost compelled to take John's life. Now, John, or Herod being a king, he could have went otherwise, but oh, look at the fame. Look at, look at everything that would have been at stake. And so, uh, John just felt like, or Herod felt like that he had to keep to his word, and he, he beheaded John. And he now is fearing that John is resurrected from the dead. Now, see, Herod feared John while he lived, and feared him still more when he was dead. I find that amazing. <clears throat> but it's a great truth that can teach us many things. And also many love good preaching if it keep far away from their beloved sin. Now as long as the preacher doesn't preach about my personal sin, he's a good preacher. But once he stalks, talks, starts talking about my personal sin, then he becomes an unfit preacher. But... It is better that sinners persecute ministers now for faithfulness than curse them eternally for unfaithfulness. Let's not forget that. Your life is a life of preaching to those that you meet from day to day. <clears throat> and so this account is inserted in that when, when Jesus or when Jesus' disciples come back to him, it says in verse 13 that they cast out many demons devils and anointed with oil, many that were sick, and healed them. Now jumping to verse 30, and the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus. They were done with their missionary journeys that Jesus had sent them out two by two, and they were coming back together, and they were telling Jesus about all the things that they had done and what they had taught. And having been exerted in, in a, in a uh, more... Um, 
concentrated way than they had before. Jesus uh, was concerned about their physical weariness. And he says, come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Jesus understood. Jesus knew what it means, what it meant to be taxed and overly taxed and overwhelmed and to be uh, physically exhausted by the demands of the ministry. And it was a test. It was a test. It was a trial period for the disciples to to go out and to partake in that. And um, uh, no doubt uh, the disciples after Jesus resurrected and and went back to heaven and they received the Holy Spirit, uh, no doubt that they experienced other uh, times like this as well. And they remembered Jesus' words when he said, Come ye yourselves apart in the desert place and rest a while. Now... I'm a practical kind of a preacher. And so I like to think about the scriptures and Jesus' words and how it applies to us. And I realize that many a person has used this very scripture to justify a week's vacation, a month's vacation, three months sabbatical, on and on the list goes. And there's a good possibility again that I'll be misunderstood. But please stay with me. There are some truths that I think we need to pay attention to. Jesus understands the physical condition. The Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, Jesus was all human. He was all God. That's something that you and I cannot figure out scientifically. In our little minds, we can't put it together. We're going to have to leave that by faith in the hands of God. And when the Bible tells us that that's the way it was, we simply believe that that's the way it was, whether it makes sense to us or not. Now, Jesus being all human, he understood what it was to be tired. He understood what it was to be weary. He understood what it was to be hungry. He understood what pain was. I mean, I'm talking about physical pain. I don't know, did he ever suffer from sickness, uh, from the flu, from the cold? I'm just assuming that he probably did. We don't have any record of that. I don't know, did he ever struggle with a gallbladder inflamed? Or did he ever struggle with his appendix? I believe Jesus had all those parts and uh, he had to contend with them. Well, that's really immaterial. But I'm just bringing it to us today, to a physical sense. Uh, Did Jesus, did he ever have chest pains? Yeah, somehow I just have to believe that Jesus suffered some chest pains. In fact, It has been said, it has been said that a man, uh, my father talked about this story um, sometime after mom passed away. Dad said there was a story of a man that had a very, very close relationship with his wife and they were together, I think, for 60, 70 years. It was up there quite quite a number of years. And, uh, his wife had become ill, and he took care of her, and she passed away. And I think it was, it was within the next month or two that he also passed away. A little bit, a little bit disturbing, because as far as the family had known, he had, he was not, he had not had some uh, physical ailment or so forth. He was an older, uh, brother, yes, but uh, uh, just a little bit precarious. The doctor diagnosed that this man died of a broken heart. He just could not, could not um, somehow work through that uh, process, and it hurt him so deeply, and he was such pained in his heart that he died. Of a broken heart, is what the doctor was saying. <clears throat> I believe, I believe somehow, 
Somehow I just believe that Jesus on the cross, even in the garden before that, uh, Jesus contemplating all of our sins, the weight of our sins upon his shoulders, just have to wonder. It's probably not the spear. Well, it wasn't the spear. Because they were going to break. Remember the soldiers were sent out to break their bone, their legs so that they would die. And when they came to Jesus, Jesus was already dead. And so they pierced his side with their spear. Somehow I just believe that Jesus died of a broken heart. Understood. What I'm simply saying is that Jesus understands our physical makeup. Jesus understands very clearly that there's times when you must, you must get alone with God. You cannot always be everything to everybody. You cannot always expend yourself to the last draw and expect to exist. Jesus did that. He sent away the disciples. He sent away the people. And he was on the land by himself. He was alone. He went into a mountain or to a hill to pray. Beloved, I'm saying on one side, there's a misrepresentation of this verse 31. When people use it to justify a time and period in life to just do nothing, sit around, do nothing. And then there are others on the other hand that say, that say you should never take a break. I believe they're both at the worth, both at opposite ends. I believe that Jesus understands the weakness of the human body. And there is times, rightful times and rightful places to take a break. To come apart and rest a while. Now it's interesting that they took a break after their intense missionary journey. Intensity of, of the ministry. They, they took a break. I raise a question. And here's where I probably be, 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 probably be misunderstood. And that is, I wonder, I'm just wondering, and I want us to think about this in light of this scripture. We have pretty well accepted the fact that our missionaries out on the foreign field, they take a month, two months, three months sometimes, furlough to go home. They do other things. They get away from it. They refresh themselves in the Lord and they go back to the work. And somehow our ministers in the home congregation are expected to stay at it. No breaks. Why, he would be an unfaithful minister. We think that would be, that would be something wrong with that if a minister took a month's break. Think about that. Say, well, 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 you're not out there every day, see? And you're just a young man. You've never been out on the mission field. So what do you know what you're talking about? Yeah, well, that's all true. I hardly know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about on this side, at least. However, that's something for us to think about. Now, not all of our churches do like we do here. I know of some some churches that have at least entertained the idea and have talked about it. I don't know, has it materialized? They have a plural ministry like we do, like we practice, and um, I believe it's like once a year they give them a month sabbatical. And um, I know of other churches that have uh, paid pastors that do that as well, uh, be that as it may. I must say, now having said all of that, having said all of that, I don't think you'll need to step in for God. I'm amazed at how the Lord puts all of that into perspective. There have been times, this is my personal testimony, there have been times in the ministry when I felt very weary, felt overwhelmed, felt exhausted. 
And I began to wonder, how in the world am I ever going to go on? <clears throat> now, a young man's not supposed to get tired. <clears throat> but the Lord seemed to work it out. I can record in my short 15 years of preaching that there have been a number of times that there have been at least six to eight weeks of no preaching the word. Now, I don't consider that necessarily a sabbatical. But I do, I do find it a, a break. Um, is preaching hard for me? Well, not so hard that, as, as it is for some. It's not the easiest thing to do, no. I would, I, I just as a personal testimony, I would much rather preach the word than, than do personal work. That's just my natural makeup. It's not that I don't enjoy the other, but that's just the way I am. <clears throat> so it's a little bit different for me to go away on vacation for a whole month than it is to not preach for six or eight weeks. It's a little different. Now, I've not tried the first, so I'm not really sure how that would be. But I have heard testimonies of ministers that have done that and have come back very richly inspired and ready for the work. However, I know of other many cases and more cases than the previous the where the sabbatical experience, whether it was for a month, two, three, six, or a year, was a diplomatic way to remove oneself from the ministry. And that's probably why we detest the idea. That's probably why we shy away from that kind of terminology is because that we have seen abuses of it. And so we, we um, just never bring it up. We don't talk about it. It has been a number of years in our past history where a minister would be a minister as long as he was walking. Um, I, remember, I remember in our community here, there was a, a bishop ordained. He was a minister for a number of years. And he was ordained as bishop at the age of 70. I remember some people having some real talks about that. I would, I'm not sure how to feel about that. I believe that that's also an area where we must be careful. Now, many of our churches, we freely talk about retirement. Uh, somehow we have, it has been enough time and we've talked about it enough and and it has had enough good experiences with that that we've uh, pretty well come to accept that. And uh, it has worked well. We have seen in cases otherwise where it has not worked so well. In fact, I'm a living testimony of that. I grew up in a situation where um, it was an older man. Well, actually, Dave wasn't that old. Uh, come to think about it, it was in his uh, mid-60s when he had his stroke, and uh, so, so those kinds of things can happen. Beloved, I'm saying this morning, the human body is so fragile. Life is so fickle. I hate to even think about it, but the truth of it is, I don't know if you thought about it or not, but I'm just going to put it to us. It's a good possibility. It's a good possibility that Brother Thomas could die today or tomorrow. Have we thought about that? I could. Any one of us could. No, 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 none, no one of us is indispensable. That's a possibility. And so the reason I say that is because, because I don't, we, we can never, we can, we can never outguess God. We can never plan ahead of things. And so sometimes the church is, is put into a crisis and, and we simply have to deal with that. I know of a number of bishops that have died at a young age and, and, and the church was left handicapped. But I'm speaking here about, uh, when I speak about retirement, I'm speaking about, uh, bishops that have, church leaders that have, uh, you know, that have gone up in years and, um, of course, uh, 
as we say, the, the old must die and the young can die. And so uh, uh, it is just good. It's good to hand off uh, the torch and, and, and allow younger ones to, to uh, be trained in, that, in the ministry. And, and uh, it, just, it just seems that if we can avoid, if we can avoid those, those crises, um, it just seems to be much better. And so we have seen examples of that which, which has worked very well, and so therefore we've, we've come accustomed to that idea of uh, ministers retiring. And uh, otherwise in the old settings, I think Steve and John would still be somewhat active and uh, would, uh, would do their part. And uh, I say God bless them for their uh, silent uh, voice and... Um, <clears throat> Uh, the day is coming. Uh, I'm not necessarily looking forward to it, but the day is coming when I get up there in years, Lord willing. If I get up there, I'll want to sit down too. <clears throat> these young fellows coming up, rising up, you young boys, one of these days you're going to be the ministers. Have you thought about that? Think about those things. One of these days. And so it's a matter of time. Now... <clears throat> so the question is, is that ever right for us to take a break? Is that ever right for us to go apart and rest a while? Is that ever right for us to go to the mountains in the east or the west? And just see the goodness of God. Allow the Lord to refresh us in our spirit and our work. <clears throat> Dear old brother Daniel Bontrager, love him dearly. Have high regards for Daniel. But if I understood him correctly, he made this statement that there is no such thing as burnout. And um, I want us to take that with graciousness. I do not feel ill at him for making, those, making that statement, but that's probably where him and I have to part ways. I believe that a person is due some break time. <clears throat> now, that depends a lot, beloved. It depends a lot on our makeup, too. Some of us can drive the wheel day after day after day and never get tired. But some of us um, probably has to do with our emotions. We go up and down, and sometimes we overwhelm ourselves. In other, word, in other words, we put ourselves to the wheel, and we push as hard as we can go, and then we wear ourselves out. Maybe it'd be better for us to just uh, pull back a bit and take it steady and easy, day in, day out. Don't get too overly excited. Just come as it may. And, uh, well, enough of that. <clears throat> think about that. I think you all need a break. I think in our spiritual endeavors, now there is no such thing as a spiritual vacation. I do want to say that. There's so never a time when we just get away from God and get away from everything and just do our own thing. That's not what I'm advocating at all. Well, <clears throat> then we see the feeding of the 5,000 <clears throat> in verses 33 through 44. <clears throat> well, verse 33 then, we see that while that the, the people or that while that Jesus and his disciples are on the ship, they're going across the sea, they want to go to this desert place to spend a day alone. Jesus wants to hear their stories. He wants the disciples to be able to sit down and rest. They have worked overly hard. He wants them to take a break. And the people know that Jesus is going to this place. And so they run on land. And they out, outwent them. In other words, they, they got over there before Jesus got there. And when Jesus and his disciples dock up at the bank, they're all on the crowd. The crowd is there the waiting for Jesus. And Jesus steps off the boat. And he's moved with compassion toward them. I'm inspired with that. When I think about my own weariness, and then the times in my own life, and you can identify with it as well. 
There's, there's times and periods when you just get so tired of people. I want to get away. It's not that I don't like people. It's not that I don't like to converse. It's not that I, I, I love people. I love to be around people. But there's times when it just gets tiring. You have to get away for a breather. <clears throat> the pressures are so demanding. And Jesus steps off the boat. The disciples, with anticipation of spending the day with Jesus, and Jesus steps off the boat, and he sees the multitude as, a, as sheep having no shepherd, and he, he spends his energies teaching the people. Oh, what a challenge. What a challenge. Jesus moved with compassion. Now, it immediately, in my mind, it raises the question, well, didn't Jesus care about the disciples? After all, he had told the disciples, let's go over to the desert place and rest a while. Let's spend the day together over at this place. And Jesus steps off the boat and he ministers to the people. I'm not sure what the disciples were doing. Did they, did they stay off to the side or did they stay in the boat or were they gathered around Jesus? But they come to Jesus after a while, after the afternoon sun is, 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 set, is, is hankering low. The, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, just send the people away. They've not had lunch. It's almost dinner time. It, this is getting late. Just send the people away. They need to have something to eat. And Jesus said, well, why don't you give them something to eat? I can just see the disciples' mouths drop open. It's like, what? We don't even have food. Interestingly enough, beloved, the disciples were just telling Jesus all the things that they had done. And what they had taught. They had cast out devils. They had done many miracles. The disciples on their missionary journeys. They were, they were anxious about telling Jesus about those, that power that Jesus had given them. And here Jesus throws another one at him and says, well, why don't you feed him? We can surely cast out devils, but we can't feed a, a group of 5,000. Huh? Is that what they thought? They didn't say that. I wondered if they thought that. They probably didn't think that far. I, I wouldn't have. <clears throat> and Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Well, what's here? What's here? And the disciples inquire, and they find a little boy with a lunch basket that his mother had carefully prepared for him, had five little dinner rolls and two fishes. That was the little boy's lunch. He had probably got so anxious in hearing Jesus' stories that he forgot to eat lunch. He had some left. And disciples say, well, we have a little boy here that has... I'm taking conclusions of the other Gospels, okay? A little boy here has a lunch. We have five little loaves. We have five loaves and two fishes. Now, they weren't, they weren't the five loaves like we had last Sunday at our communion. Big, nice loaves. A little... More like a little muffin. Cakes. Well, Jesus says, bring them. Jesus blessed it. And we know the story. Jesus broke the bread and the fishes. Now, surely those five loaves and two fishes didn't fill up 12 baskets. But see, Jesus, this is another lesson. Jesus doesn't just give us just enough. Just enough. The disciples walk through the crowd. Any more? Any more? No, no, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, in, I'm, I'm full. I'm, I cannot eat anymore. I'm full. And the people, you know, they tattered some here and there. And so they gather up all of that. Gather up all the waste. As 12 baskets. Even that in itself is a miracle. Just the waste alone. Let alone feeding the other 5,000. The other gospels say at least 5,000 men. Well, this one does too. Uh, it says besides women and children. <clears throat> Jesus 
moving with compassion. Let that be a challenge for us. Give ye them to eat, he says. The challenge, beloved, that I have, that I receive from this, and that I want to give to us today, what is that in your hand? What do you have? Jesus is asking, when you see a need, you see a need in the church, you see a need in your family, you see a need in your community, Oh, something, somebody ought to do something about that. We, pray, we get on our knees and we pray and we pray and we say, God, you must, you must take care of this need. We have a real need here. You must intervene. You must come to our rescue. How often is Jesus telling us, well, you, you, you feed the people. You, you do, you take care of the need. And we say, oh, I, I can't, I can't do it. Beloved, who, who is Jesus' hands and feet if it isn't ours? And so I'm challenging us. What do you have today? I tell you, Jesus can take little and make much of it. If God was able to create this whole world out of nothing, what a small thing it is for him to take five loaves of bread and feed 5,000 plus people. Say, well, I don't have much. Well, give to God what you do have and allow God to to multiply it. If God, again I repeat, if God is able to create the world out of nothing, can He take your little bit of energy, your little bit of ability, your little bit of money and multiply it and do many great things? Yeah, sure is. Sure is. Well, I'm blessed by that. I haven't always lived up to it, but I'm blessed with it. Jesus can take so much. He can do so much when we just avail ourselves. Just give him everything. He can do it all. Now there's something else here. That is, that is interesting as we think about the disciples wanting to spend the day with Jesus. And Jesus spends the day teaching the, the multitude and then he feeds them. And that's, that's such a blessing. That's an outpouring of Jesus' compassion. Jesus looks at the multitude as not having a shepherd. They, they don't, they, there's a lot of things they don't know. They don't understand. And so he wants to teach them the truths. He wants to give them those those things that pertain to life and godliness. He wants to give them those things that they will never hunger again. They will never thirst again like he told the woman at the well. Those people were interested in what Jesus had to say. Else they would have never made their way around the lake to get over there. And Jesus gives them that. And of course, Jesus hadn't forgotten that they were possibly hungry. It's not that the disciples had to come remind him. But Jesus also took care of their physical needs. Jesus, again, I repeat, knew and understood what it is to be hungry. He understood that those people were hungry. They were with him all day. They possibly had very little to eat for breakfast. And they were with him. They were out in their uh, doings and so forth. And they gathered with him. They had no lunch. There's a good possibility they were hungry. Especially the little children. Little children tend to, you know, we as adults, we can make it on at least one or two meals a day. But little children just find it difficult to do that. They're growing bodies. And they're not fully matured. And so they takes more food, takes more energy. It's amazing what our boys eat. Aye, aye, aye. You, those of you that have raised boys understand what a growing boy can eat. It's amazing. So, sometimes when we get up to full age, full growth, we don't eat quite as much. In fact, it is good. It's good if we don't. But a growing boy needs much to eat. And so, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I suppose that, that a boy could have ate two of those lunches. 
Jesus took care of their physical need. That's the point. Christ noticed the frights of some and the toils of others of his disciples and provides rest for those that are tired and refuge for those that are terrified. In him there is enough for all that come. You want something? Come to Jesus. He has it all. He will give you all. He will satisfy our need. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. In verse 45, straightway he constrained his disciples to go into the ship, go to the other side. Now what's happening here? And he went and he sent them away. He sent the multitude away. The people sent them away and he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, now this was, I'm, I think the terminology is correct here, saying that it is night. When nighttime has come, evening, the, the, the ship was, or about dark time, uh, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. Jesus saw the disciples on the boat out there and they were having an awful time. They were struggling with the wind. It says that they were toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh upon them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed he had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. That's such a blessing when we think about Jesus' words there. But there's some other lesson here that I think is important for us to understand. That I think Jesus is giving his disciples. And I think it's important for us to understand in our day and our time. And in a practical way. Did you catch what it says in verse 48? After Jesus sends the disciples away and he spends time in prayer on the mountain alone with God. He has this has this break time himself alone with God, and then he wants to meet with the disciples again. And he looks at the, looks over the sea, and he can see across the waves. He sees the disciples struggling with the wind. Now in all perspective, let's remember, let's not forget that the disciples had cast out demons. They had done many wonderful works. Jesus gave them that power to do that. And they were anxious to tell Jesus about that. They had just, they had just left the scene where Jesus fed 5,000 plus people with a little bit of nothing. And they were out there struggling with the wind and the water. And it says about the fourth watch of the night. My question immediately went, why did Jesus wait so long? He already had his prayer time. He knew the disciples were struggling. Why did Jesus wait so long? Is it true that Jesus has compassion on the crowd, but when the disciples are out there struggling with their trial, he cares nothing about them? Is that true? No. No. Beloved, it's not true at all. But I'm moved and stirred in my emotion as I think about the fact that Jesus stands on the shore side and he looks across the water and he sees the disciples struggling and he waits and he waits and he waits. He waits till the disciples are at their wit's end. The permeating question for us this morning is, I've thought about this through the night. Does Jesus see your struggle? Does Jesus see my struggle? And the second question is, even if Jesus does see, does he really even care? Does he really care? I mean, after all, what does he wait? We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. Jesus calmed the storm. 
Calm the storm. We pray and we pray. So you see, he'd done that before. The disciples, unless they were awfully, awfully forgetful. And I know we can get that way. And that's probably why Jesus waits sometimes. To make an indelible impression upon our minds. To not forget this. Don't forget that Jesus has power to calm the storm. Don't forget the fact that Jesus has power to take a little and make much and feed 5,000 plus people. Don't forget the fact that Jesus has all the words, the truth of life. But you see, sometimes we forget so soon. It's only a matter of hours. And we forget that Jesus just fed 5,000 people plus out of five loaves and two fishes. And here we are in the midst of our struggle. We're struggling. We're fighting. We're praying. We're, we're seeking answers. And Jesus is over there. As it were on the seashore. Looking at us. And he sees a struggle. And why doesn't he come? As I've struggled about that whole idea through the night, I have concluded that it's not for me to know why Jesus waits. I'm sure there was a lesson that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples. I'm sure there's a lesson that Jesus wants to teach you and I today in our struggles. The point really isn't why does Jesus wait? That's really not the question. The question is, will I recognize Jesus when he does come? I'm reminded of going to the doctor. Sometimes when you go to the doctor, the nurse takes you back in that room, in that exam room. You're waiting for the doctor. The doctor or the nurse asks you all kinds of questions, says, now the doctor will be in soon. And sometimes it is true. He is in soon. And other times you sit there and you wait and you wait and you wait and finally the doctor does come. And other times you sit back there in that room and you've read every bulletin, you've looked at every picture, you've looked at every corner, you've looked at every crack in the ceiling, you looked at every paint miss flaw, you've looked at all the all the literature that's to read, you've looked at every line, you've looked under the bench, and finally you're ready to get tear the door open and say, is there any doctor in this office? Well, and finally, finally the doctor comes. But the truth there is, the doctor is coming. That's why you're there. The doctor is coming. And so, beloved, it may be a while, I want to take courage. I want to give you this encouragement. I don't know what all of this means to you. I just know what it means to me. And that is that I want to take courage in the fact that Jesus does see. Secondly, that he does care. And thirdly, that he is coming. Am I ready? Will I see him? Will I allow Jesus to minister to my need? Let's kneel in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank Thee again for Your Scriptures. We thank Thee again for this time that we've been able to gather and to hear Your voice again, speaking to us through Your Word, through song. Father, we thank You for Your great blessings to us. Forgive us, O Lord, for forgetting so soon. Forgive us, Lord, for hardening our hearts and just not seeing and remembering your wonderful works. Father, all of us have experienced your great blessing. We have experienced times when you've answered prayer. We've experienced 
times when we know your mighty hand was at work. We've also experienced times and periods of struggle and trial. We've experienced the time of waiting. And it seems sometimes it's extremely difficult. Father, in those periods of waiting, may our faith be increased. May we be encouraged and blessed in the faith and assured in our hearts that you're seeing that the same compassion that compelled you to teach the people and to provide for their physical needs and to feed them was the same compassion that took you out on the waters and took you into the boat with the disciples and the storm calmed. It was the same compassion that when you got to the other side that people brought all their sick and you touched them and healed them all. Fathers, we read these stories and we look at your life on earth. Help us to not forget or to not assume that somehow you're not with us today. But Father, that your same compassion is yet to your people today. And that we can lean upon you and trust in you and understand your goodness and your mighty work. Father, help us to just believe in you and trust in you. Thank you for your holy scriptures that give us these inspirations and compel us in a walk with you. I pray, O oh Father, that each person here may find a time in their life when they can get alone, rest a while, be with you, be refreshed, be encouraged again, be blessed again with the work that is ahead. God, we just pray that you would bless us this week May your anointing be upon us. May we be your shining light. May we give to you the little that we have. 